BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. opportunity today to sit down in the Marlins clubhouse up in Jupiter with shortstop JT Riddle. Um, JT, appreciate you joining me today. And just want to kind of start by telling your story a little bit. Um, obviously, Marlins fans have gotten to know you over the past couple of years, but uh, just what some of your interests are and kind of how you grew up with the game. You are a proud Kentucky boy, is that correct? That is correct. All right, so, so take me through a little bit of kind of you sort of growing to love the game. Uh, you know, when you were growing up in Kentucky? Uh, yeah, you know, I grew up uh, in Frankfurt, you know, not that big of a town, uh, back home, and just grew up, you know, around the game. Uh, you know, my family and everybody, you know, they all, they all, all my older cousins and uh, family members and everybody, you know, played sports, so I kind of, I was kind of one of the younger, I guess, cousins um, on my mom's side of the family, and we always grew up playing wiffle ball. My grandparents lived on a farm, so we always, you know, at Easter's and Christmases and Thanksgivings and everything, you know, we found ourselves out in the yard playing wiffle ball. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, just kind of thinking back to those days, you know, out in the backyard playing wiffle ball, playing, you know, whatever it was, throwing a football, anything outdoors. And uh, it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. And just kind of think back to those moments, it kind of got me into you know, wanting to play ball and everything, and then of course, you know, my parents, you know, my dad you know, was an athlete, and uh, of course my mom's side of the family, you know, both sides of the family were very athletic, and then my stepdad was probably the biggest influence, he was my coach throughout all my life, and, uh, you know, he coached me in everything from t-ball to, you know, minor league to little league to, you know, summer balls all the way through high school, and, uh, he was probably my biggest influence on getting me better at the game and just helping me along the way. A couple of questions on that. First thing, and I know you're a huge uh, Kentucky basketball fan, and that shows up on your Twitter account at times as well. Um, so why the – you mentioned that everybody played wiffle ball. Why the gravitation from you to baseball as opposed to maybe basketball? Was basketball something that you were skilled in growing up? I love basketball. I played all through high school. Um, I – you know, had offers to go play some college basketball, and you know, I, I guess if I really wanted to, I could have probably done both. I would have had to go to a smaller school. Mm-hmm. Um, probably wouldn't have, you know, got much playing time in Kentucky. <laughs> but uh, I've always said, you know, I might have been able to walk on uh, Kentucky. You wouldn't have been one. Of, you wouldn't have been one of Calipari's one and duns in no, Kentucky. No, I probably wouldn't have been a one and done. But, uh, but yeah, it was. Uh, 
I love basketball and I love playing and played, like I said, played all through high school and played AU ball growing up just as much as I did, you know, growing up playing baseball. And uh, it just came down to it that you know, I knew baseball, you know, I could see a foreseeable future, I guess, and, you know, a potential to make it, you know. I guess as a professional, you, 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 you mentioned your stepfather being a big influence all along the way and coaching you all the way up. Sometimes for, for some kids that can be a, a bit of a challenge at times, particularly if you're hearing the same voice over and over and over you know, about the way that you play for many, many, many years. How did you kind of balance that relationship with him where obviously he's your stepfather, but he wants you to excel in the sport? Yeah, you know, he came into my life really early and, uh, it was a great relationship, and you know he was he coached college softball for a while, and uh, you know when I was you know, six, seven, eight years old, you know I was up there hanging out, you know with with his team. Uh, he was at Midway College, and uh, I remember you know playing against him sometimes, and, and uh, so. But he was always, you know, a good influence to me, just the way he spoke and the way he coached, and you know he would get up in my face, you know sometimes but you know, he would also you know write home you know tell me you know all the good things that happened too but uh but uh, he, he was very good and you know, i think it was just a you know it was a good relationship between me and him to be able to you know me be able to listen to him but also you know like i said he, he would get on me sometimes um <laughs> But what what about was specifically? Was I mean, was it about process or results? Because a lot of times that that's sort of the, the key difference is whether you're focusing on sort of the process of what a kid is doing, trying to get better, or on obviously the way it plays out. Yeah, I mean, it's I guess you could say it's a little bit of both, really. I mean, the process of everything because he he knew, you know, kind of I guess what I had in me early on at an early age, and uh, being able to you know, be around me all my life and. Uh, you know, I guess just seeing, you know, he had coached at the college level, so he had understood, and he had been around tons of athletes. He's coached high school, middle school, even before I, you know, was older. And, uh, you know, he had coached so much, and he's known he's known for that in mm-hmm. the hometown. He's coached everywhere, and, uh, it's, you know, it's just, like I said, it's a, it's a good relationship that we have. It's like a, it's a father-son relationship, but it's a best friend, you know, relationship too, and, uh, um, it's been very good. So gravitating to the shortstop position, which which obviously is uh, that's the position that kids always want to play when they're growing. It's like quarterback, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. You're a shortstop. You're the quarterback. You're the center of the infield. Um, talk me through a little bit, sort of how you know that became your spot. I think back, and it's just you know. I wanted to always play shortstop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played a little bit of third. I was a Chipper Jones fan, so I played some third. And uh, well, he played some shortstop when he was young too, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And so it's just you know, I guess you know, short they say is you know the best, put the best player on the field at shortstop. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just I guess when I started playing back in the day, it was I want to play shortstop, and then it just kind of grew and it's like, well, I want to be a shortstop. And we got to high school and. I you know, played short from freshman through senior year, and of course I pitched too. I went to Kentucky as a two-way guy actually, and uh, had some arm trouble and ended up, you know, playing right field up there, mm-hmm. and uh, and then played second. I didn't play much short in college, so then being able to get that opportunity to prove that I 
could play shortstop even when I got to pro ball. It still was kind of, I was everywhere when I got to pro ball. I was in third, I was in second, I didn't play much short. And then in Greensboro, I started playing short again. Dave Berg was the manager that year, and you know, he, was, he was great, and he said, I remember him, basically, he's like, well, I'm going to play him at shortstop. And I, just, I think back to that day, and I haven't played much, much anything else, you know, much anything else uh, <laughs> since then, so I kinda, you know, thank him a lot, too, when it comes to you know, giving me the opportunity to play short and prove that I can be a shortstop. So, what is the toughest thing about breaking into the majors? Is it, is it good? I mean, for a lot of guys, it's an ability thing. For a lot of guys, it's just sort of fighting through the mental frustrations of what this game presents to you and then doing it in the settings that are not like this, right? So for, for you, what was what was sort of your timetable to break into the majors? Did you hit it Were you, and, and sort of how did that play out? I think early on was, you know, my timetable was kind of I want to progress. I want to build every year. I want to move up a level every year from – rookie ball the next year I want to be in low A the next year I want to be in high A I want to be able to move up I don't really want to repeat I don't want to repeat anything and uh, that was kind of my mindset and my goal was to just move up and then when I finally I guess in 17 when I got the call it was of course a dream come true for me but then to think about you know I guess everything you've done to build up to that point, and it's like, man, this game really changed from AAA to the majors. And the game really speeds up. And of course, I think back to that first week. Man, will I ever get a hit in the big leagues? <laughs> and uh, it's like, man, this is tough. You know, I'm, will I get sent now? Will I ever, you know, be back? And uh, but you go through those, you know, those things, those times where you have to change, and you know, the game's going to slow down for you. I feel like I've always been able to kind of slow the game down uh, pretty easy. But that's probably, through my time of baseball, that kind of first week in the big league, that's probably the fastest the game of baseball has ever been for me. Take me through the first at-bat. Who was it against? Well, it was against Bartolo, and I actually had a really good at-bat against him. I, wasn't, I didn't go in there facing somebody <laughs> throwing like 98, you know, uh, the Grom or... No Scherzer in the old like days, that. Spartolo so, could get up there, but not anymore. <laughs> so it was nice, and uh, I think I'd actually faced him in spring training uh, that that spring. And so I go in, and I'm like, he can't beat me. He has nothing to beat me, you know, to get me out. Just gotta, you know, I know he's gonna throw a fastball. I just gotta, you know. But I couldn't, I couldn't square one up. I kept fouling him off and fouling him off. I think it was like a nine pitch at bat, <laughs> and I finally squared one up and smoked one to left field. And of course, you know, right at the left fielder, mm-hmm. just like, man, all right, this is this isn't bad, you know. Mm-hmm. It took me a little bit longer, you know, mm-hmm. but but it was it was a good first at bat, you know, my head I had a good first at bat. So, like you said, the game is faster than you anticipated that it would be or have been for you before. At what point during that rookie season did it start to slow down for you a little bit? I think when, of course, I was up for two weeks, you know, of course, I hit the homer. You know, it was kind of my, I count that as more of my first tip than my actual first tip. All right. My first tip was the, you know, the check swing, bounce, bounces, hit the bat, and rolls down the line. Count the same in batting uh, average, though. They count the same. You know, they're both <laughs> knocking, that, you know, knocking the books. But, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, I, I think back, and it's like I, got, I was up for about another week and uh, sent back down to AAA for about a three, four-week span. And when I came back up, it was like, man, this is 
I feel more comfortable mm-hmm. um, being in the clubhouse, being in, you know, knowing what to do, you know. It's like it wasn't my first call up anymore. It's like I'm back up and now I can I feel comfortable. I can prove myself. And I actually I felt more comfortable and I started playing better too. I remember when I first got back up the second time that kind of got on a little hot streak and I felt really good. What about defensively? So, you know, obviously maybe not, not be quite the same of an adjustment as hitting because with pitchers you're going sort of up the ladder. I would assume playing shortstop is for you at this stage, playing shortstop. But what, what was kind of the transition to doing it at this level? It's, you know, there was definitely a transition. Like I said, the game was faster. It yeah. felt faster. So I felt like I was, you know, trying to be too quick at times or rush something or, you know, a ball was hit at me, you know. Every, I guess everybody up there, you know, felt like they were hitting balls at me like 110 miles an hour. And uh, I remember I took, it was, uh, I think it was Bryce Harper. He smoked one to me. And uh, I think it went down as my first, first big league air. And uh, he smoked one to me, and it was a line drive, like one hop, and it was, a, you know, bullet. I felt like it just got on me. It wasn't hit, you know, that hard. Now I feel like I would just, you know, take a step back and just catch it, you right. know, normal. But right then, I was like, which way do I go? Do I go forward? Do I go back? And ended up, I think, just like falling. Like I felt like I fell on top of the ball and just like tried to knock it down. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, the game slows down on both sides of the hitting, fielding, and you just you learn so much, you know. When you get comfortable once you get up so long, you know, whether it's in the clubhouse, whether it leads to the field, you just get comfortable and you get used to it. We had a bit of an audio malfunction uh, towards the back end of that interview, so I just want to bring you a little bit more from JT. I do think uh, he's an interesting guy that, that South Florida sports fans should get to know a little bit better. Uh, a few things here. One, he's a single father, uh, his daughter actually turning five in March, and so we talked a little bit about his difficulty learning how to sort of get a ponytail for her which is something that I can relate to um, as the father of a four-and-a-half-year-old. If you don't do that right, they certainly tell you about it. Uh, we also talked about sort of where he hangs out in South Florida. He says he can kind of move around without too much stress. I think that's the case for a lot of the Marlins right now, particularly the young Marlins. He hangs out a lot down in Coconut Grove, which he says a little bit more his speed as a Kentucky guy than, say, uh, you know, South Beach would be. Um, I asked him to make a choice because he, again, is a Kentucky guy. Uh, what is the most exciting event, the World Series, the Kentucky Derby, or Kentucky being in the NCAA championship? And he said, obviously, the World Series if he's in it, but he doesn't want to watch the World Series if he's not. Uh, so he'd probably go with the Derby even as quickly as that ends. And and also we talked a little bit about Derek Jeter and kind of what he's picked up from Derek. And the biggest thing he talked about was kind of that Derek was a grinder. And I, I do think that's something that's not really talked about much because Derek had kind of a glamorous lifestyle away from the field. But his biggest thing was Derek showed up every day to compete and even all the way up until the end with the walk-off at the very end of his career, but that he was always there to compete. And then so maybe it wasn't quite as glamorous as sort of, you know, what you would see in the tabloids and all that stuff. But that's something he's admired from Derek. He says they haven't really talked that much about specifics of the position of shortstop. It's more about approach. You know, when do you start getting ready for the season? How do you prepare your body? He says that kind of stuff from Derek has been very, very valuable to him. And as far as the team itself, you know, one thing he talked about, 
was that, you know, they don't have a Harper, they don't have a Machado, obviously they don't have that kind of player with that kind of star power, but you never know where the stars are going to come from, and he feels good uh, about the young group, and he just thinks there's going to be a lot of improvement for a lot of them who were up for the first time last year, as he was a couple years ago, to this year. So some stuff there uh, from JT Riddle, and, and one other thing, I, I should add this to the end, he says, the, I asked him the one thing that he didn't, that people may not know about him, and he said, uh, you know, that he had show horses when he was a kid, that he would basically, you know, take the horses around and uh, and all that. And so I asked him, uh, you know, if he's gone out to Gulfstream and any of these other places. Obviously, he goes back in Kentucky uh, and hangs out quite a bit there. But he said he was at Gulfstream a couple times uh, the previous year and was going to get back out there again. So he is a guy who's integrating himself in South Florida. And obviously, uh, we'll be following JT going forward. All right, thanks again to JT Riddle for joining us. Hopefully, we get a chance to talk to more Marlins players throughout the season. As I mentioned before, the Marlins have been really cooperative with us, and we appreciate it. But now let's sort of dig into the team a little bit. This team that's won 600 games in a row in spring training as we're coming <laughs> to you. Uh, they, they are an absolute juggernaut. We know how spring training translates into the regular season. It's a direct correlation. So we're expecting 125 wins I agree. this season at the very least. But yeah, let's dig into where they are because I think, Chris, you and I had Mike Hill on the pod and, you know, the president of baseball operations for the Marlins. And, and I think both you and I were kind of impressed by sort of the clarity of his vision, um, which is something I think we're, we're trying to get from a couple of the other teams here. That doesn't mean it's going to work necessarily. It doesn't mean that necessarily they'll pick the right players, but at least I sort of understand the philosophy. But we're not really going to look long term here. Uh, we're going to look at this season. And our guy, Craig Mish uh, from Swings and Mishes, you check out his podcast. He has Jeremy Taché and Michael Sandbeek on there quite a bit as well. You know, Craig has talked a lot about how this is going to be an absolutely miserable season um, in terms of, you know, a transition, you know, from kind of where they were last year where they had a few more veterans and now they're kind of moving towards, um, you know, a situation where, you know, they're probably going to be trading off even more of these veterans. I mean, we talk about the five core guys with Mike Hill, you know, the three outfielders, you know, D Gordon, JT Rumuto. But now, you know, you, you have a couple other veterans, right? So you've got Martin Prado, who's going to play a prominent role. You've got, you brought in Neil Walker for one year uh, to play a couple of different positions. You've got Starling Castro, you know, at second base, possibly hitting third this season. I don't know that those guys are going to finish the season with you, too. So I, I think, Chris, we've got to take all of that into account as we sort of project how many games this team is going to lose this year. Uh, because, I, you know, the objective is not to win this season. Right, and that's always a difficult thing when you're trying to figure, when you're trying to sort of prognosticate in the near term. I, I guess, um, to me, the things that you can leave the season with that are that are sort of in the short term is tracking the development of the players that you feel like are going to be uh, part of the long term. And, and you mentioned the winning a 1,000 in a row in spring training, and I was trying to look at some of the underlying performances. I mean, some of them, it's like a player like Miguel Rojas, who's 30, who's been around the team for a 1,000 years who's playing well, that's not really particularly important. It's really the prospects, how much they're playing, how much they're developing. I mean, hell, tracking the minor leagues uh, could be as interesting to this team as tracking the major leagues. But I do want to hit on one thing that Michael Hill repeatedly talked about during his interview with us, and that's pitching. And, and he said over and over, starting pitching, starting pitching, starting pitching. It's what I'm looking for and trying to have as much of 
as as is possible. And so I, I try to look through some of the performances, and that is actually the thing in this spring training run that I'm really interested in. So uh, you look at, for example, a Pablo Lopez, who they just traded for, has pitched really well for them. His ERA is under one in spring training. Last time out, six innings, two hits, no earned runs, five strikeouts. Caleb Smith has pitched really well for them. Uh, he's, he's 27, so he's not really quite in the age range of, of a rebuild, but again, could be someone that, you, that you're getting something in return for in, in, in the trade market. Um, Trevor Richards has pitched really well for them. Uh, he had a, a perfect game, six innings, uh, a perfect six innings, six, six innings, no hits, no runs, no walks, and six strikeouts. Sandy Alcantara, to me, is an interesting one. Uh, he actually, he got bombed, but yet at the same time, so he pitched three and a third, six hits, six earned runs allowed, but he struck out seven. Uh, and then in another start, he pitched four, four and a third and struck out five. So his strikeout power is going to be something worth noting. But again, they're going to lose a lot of games. Uh, it, they might actually continue to try and, and tear this thing down even more uh, by trying to offload Martin Prado and Castro. And hell, I mean, uh, you, you might have to you might have to do a salary dump NBA trade of Wei-Yin Chen at this point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but I, I, I do wonder kind of if they can make those steps in this year and it, particularly, I'm looking at it from a pitching point of view. When I'm looking at box scores uh, at the end of every game this year, I'm looking at who pitched and how well they pitched because that's kind of how Mike Hill wants to judge this thing, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. I mean, it is about pitching for him. And what's interesting is we always talk about the Astros model, um, but the Astros were basically built through their lineup. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, th- they added Verlander in trade and they had some pitchers who they came had, they up. Keiko, who was really good. Keiko was really good, and obviously they went out, you know, to Pittsburgh and 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 with Cole this past year, and that worked out really well. And so they were able to supplement, but they really did it with position players. I mean, they they did it with well Altuve was a guy who wasn't drafted high, but Correa, uh, Bregman. I mean, right down the line, Springer. I mean, you know, their lineup is loaded, and these are all guys that came up through their system, and a lot of it was through what we sort of call baseball tanking, which is a little different than the tanking in the other sports. It does seem like Mike Hill's philosophy here, as you said, he kept talking about pitching, 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 pitching. pitching. Um, it doesn't mean they're not looking for position players, but I don't know that it's as clear on the position players side. Right. So like last year, you know, you you, you sort of force fed Brinson. And I, I think they did it for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, they wanted to first they thought he was ready, I guess. Um, and second, he's local. It, you thought you had something, somebody that you could sell. And three, they traded Yelich. They had to show something for it. Yeah, because um, because they really were in a position to show a lot for Stanton at that point. And in terms of what they got back. And so you, you push Brinson out there and look, it was a cataclysmic disaster. I mean, obviously now he's had a good spring for the most part. I and mean, he got off to a really hot start last year. He had a good spring too. So we'll see where the adjustments are. You and I did a podcast with Monte Harrison. I think we were both impressed with him as a personality. Um, certainly you're impressed with the tools. I mean, he has all the tools that you want, big athletic, strong, can throw, can run, can hit for power. Is he going to be able to hit curveballs at the major league level at this stage? I mean, that's, you know, that was an issue with Brinson. So do they have two outfielders there? Is Sierra a potential outfielder for them going forward? What do they, they have a couple of prospects at short. They've got a couple of prospects at second whenever they. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game. I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, 
Wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Miami Heat. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Move Castro. Brian Anderson's going to play somewhere, but he's kind of an old, you know, he's an old prospect also. Like you talk about Caleb Smith. I mean, they have some guys who are kind of, you know, in that sort of late 20s range where it's a little hard to call them prospects. But I, I thought one of the most interesting things that Mike Hill said when he talked to us was that, you know, he was like, we're not looking for the cute guy, you know, who can be the fourth or fifth starter. And I respect that philosophy because you can find those guys, right? Like you can find a guy to eat up innings. Like, I, you know, I go back even to the good Marlins teams. Remember Mark Redman? Uh, yep. You know, he, you know, in that 2003 season, didn't throw particularly hard, left-handed, got off to a really good start, kind of faded as the season went on. And what I don't even think he was in the postseason rotation or not. Uh, he, he, start, he started World Series. He's the reason why Josh Beckett started on three days rest. Because right. He started right. World Series game two and was a disaster. Was a disaster. And then and then, uh, then McKeon decided I'm going to go with Beckett on three days rest. Right. So, I mean, those are the type of guys. And Redmond had a pretty decent, you know, major league career, but. Those are the type of guys like you're not really. Now I thought Caleb Smith was one of those guys. Maybe he projects to more. Um, but but when you're looking, it seems to me like Michael's philosophy is we're looking for boomer bust guys. Mm-hmm. Like I, like I'm okay having seven busts if I find three booms. Like I, that's that's a different philosophy. And I think the reason he can do that. I hate to say this, but the reason he can do that is because nobody cares. Like if, <laughs> if, 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 right? you're right, like, and, like, and, like, and they're going to lose anyway. They might as well take big swings. Right. So like like the Dolphins, it's harder for the Dolphins to do that. Right. Because mm-hmm. the Dolphins, people are paying attention. So when you take a swing at a and just go back a year before they were tanking two years, you take a swing at a Charles Harris. Right. In the first round who projected to potentially be a really good pass rusher, but also had some busts, you know, stain on him potentially. Right. And he looks more like a bust at this stage. Um, so you take, you know, you take the big swings. I mean, even Devonte Parker, there were some guys, Jordan Phillips, remember Jordan Phillips second yeah. round went to Buffalo. Like everybody's like, Oh, he could be like a Tim Bowens type defensive tackle, or he could be what he's been, which is, you know, doesn't give consistent effort. They decide to get rid of him. You know, he's making a lot of noise in Buffalo, but not making a ton of plays. I, that's, 
you know, so I think, but the Marlins can do those things because nobody is going to know. Like, no, like if they bust on somebody, and, and even look at the Yelich trade, like maybe Brinson and Harrison don't both become elite. But if one does, then okay, you know, you've done okay for, you're never going to do great for a guy who turns out to be MVP, but you've done okay. And so I, I think because of that, the losses are going to be more significant because you're going to have guys who come up and struggle the same way that Brinson has. And the other thing with the organization is they're not always going to make a decision based on what's best for the field because they still want to make sure like they don't want to bring guys up too soon because they don't want to lose the year of, you know, control and, you know, all the things that, you know, Samson and Luria rightly so used to get banged on about, but I mean, this regime is going to do the same thing because I, you know, you don't, if you're not, if you're not trying to win 90, 90, 95 games, then why waste the service year? It's like burning a red shirt year. You know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make sense. So, uh, but look, I, I think they're probably going to lose a hundred. Um, I think a couple of pitchers could survive, uh, could surprise. I guess this would be my question for you. What, what qualifies as on-field success this year? To, to you, if I was to say, you come out of 162 and this happens, you're not making the playoffs, you're not making a wild card run, et cetera, but this happens, this would make it a success. What is that? Uh, it, for me, it's the sign of core players uh, starting to emerge. It's Lewis Brinson having a good season. It's a few midseason call-ups having good good campaigns. You're like, okay, when we're building out a future Marlins lineup, a future Marlins starting rotation, a future Marlins bullpen, these are start of the these are some of the players that are starting to emerge. I think you can't really care about the fact. Like again, you go back to those Astro seasons. That's three years: fifty six, one hundred and six, fifty five, one hundred and seven. 51 and 111. I mean, that's three years of basically win percentage in the 30s in baseball. It's almost impossible. Um, but I, I, I don't particularly care about the on-field results. I, I, I care about uh, the on-field performances of the players. Um, and, and I just want to be able to see that. And, and as much as, as you said, they threw Brinson out there last year because they wanted to justify this trade. And, and he was a local kid. But you do want to see... In, obviously, some of the draftees, some of the prospects that they already had coming through and playing well, that would be nice. But some of the players that you've traded for in the Yelich trade, the Stan trade, the Remuto trade, like the fact that obviously you're looking through the performances in spring training and hoping that Sandy Alcantara, who came in the Ozuna trade, works out. And and the fact that Pablo Lopez has come in uh, from this Remuto trade and straight away is playing really well uh, or is pitching really well for the Marlins, that's great. You want to see, in particular, those prospects that you traded for uh, starting to reveal themselves. But yeah, to me, it's about when when this gets good in three years, these are going to be the players that are going to be the foundation of it. That's what I want to see. I do want to note, though, uh, something that, so, so you, you were talking about that Mike Hill thing about how they're taking big swings and like I, I and we were even talking like all fair is like yeah well he's six foot four and he's 215 pounds and he can you know jump out of a building and, and all this stuff I'm a bit surprised that a baseball executive would talk about the sport that way because mm. obviously athleticism is a big part of this but I mean there are also fat guys that succeed short guys that succeed skinny guys that succeed not particularly great athletes that succeed I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that in baseball uh, and I'd be curious what it's like around the league but uh, isn't isn't kind of like the whole money ball idea that yeah. you know that we can get Kevin Euclid who is not particularly impressive be our Greek god of walks and, and, and play well like I, I almost kind of had thought that that wasn't really part of the calculus maybe this is kind of part of a new money ballish type calculus where you want great athletes and try and turn them into great baseball players but it always seemed to be that athleticism 
to a quality baseball player was kind of the most tenuous relationship other than maybe like in soccer where you have, you know, I would say most great soccer players, if you saw them walking down the street, you would know that they were top professional athletes. Um, and, and, and I kind of thought that baseball was next up on that list. I was a little bit surprised that it, it's a little bit of an old school, but maybe, who knows, it's new school. I don't I don't know enough about, you know, what's happening in the scouting world to really to, to say that for sure. Yeah, they don't, it is fascinating. And it's not just that it's sort of anti-analytics. It's also sort of an anti-Jeter philosophy if you think about it because I mean Derek was a good athlete uh, obviously but you know Derek was like I mean sort of a grinder that's one of the things JT Riddle was talking about which a little bit got lost on the tape there but uh, you know that Derek was sort of a grinder he he wasn't necessarily um, uh, you know what Mike Hill is describing like yeah I I think Derek was 6'2 right and again good athlete um, but not like an uber athlete and and what what, uh, you know what kind of Mike Hill's talking about is yeah, we're going to go get a bunch of, you know, football and basketball players, <laughs> throw them out on the field and see if they can hit a curveball. Now, I, maybe I'm simplifying it a little bit too much, but even when he talks about pitchers, like uh, his, the whole thing, have you seen how tall our pitchers are? Yeah. <laughs> like 6'5", 6'6", 6'7". Um, you know, now, now the Marlins have done that before they had some guys like a Chris Volstad. Okay. Remember him? Yeah. Like a lot of, <laughs> right. I mean, and it didn't convert. Um, and so that's why I'm saying like, ultimately we can talk about philosophy and I, I like the clarity that Mike Hill speaks with. Um, I, I, again, it's something I want to hear from the dolphins and the heat, frankly, going forward. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to pick the right guys. Okay. And that's, you know, you're identifying athletes and, and look, when you're, Trading for like the shortstop prospect in the Stanton trade, the Devers kid, right? Like, what was he, 18, 19 years old? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't know. I mean, I, yeah. and we talk about how hard it is to project in the NBA when guys are one and done. Okay. Like, baseball's harder. Like, I, you, you, you know, I mean, first thing, I mean, the skill sets are more difficult to identify, but also then, you know, he's going to bump around in the minor leagues for four or five years. Like, what happens to him in his life during that, right? Does, how, does the frustration of the game get to him and all that? I mean, that's, it, it, mentally, baseball is the most challenging of all the sports, in my view. And so you don't know how a kid's going to handle it. So what Mike Hill's doing is very difficult. What Jeter's doing is very difficult. What Gary Dembo is doing is very difficult. I do have confidence in him based on a lot of the things that he's done in the past. But like you're, you're, you're basically doing is he's, they're casting as wide a net as they can with the highest upside prospects that they possibly can, knowing that a lot of them are going to bust. It's just going to happen. And, but if you go back to the Marlins, like even 10 years ago, okay. And I know, you know, we had Dan Jennings uh, on the pod with, with Craig Mish and I recommend you listen to it, but I, I was critical of, of Jennings and others during that time when I was writing columns for the Sun Sentinel. This goes back even further. Cause I, I guess my last year as a columnist for the Sentinel was 2010, but like in the two thousands, like, after they won the World Series, like they drafted a ton of pitchers in the first three rounds. Mm-hmm. A lot. They're all, of like, they're all like high school pitchers, right? All and they all busted. Yeah, they all busted, like to varying degrees. I mean, uh, there were a couple that hit okay. I mean, we we recently saw Kevin Olson arguing with our Slim from Ballscast at a watch party <laughs> at Duffy's. Where he was arguing NBA until we realized it was Kevin Olson. Um, but well, and, and he I, was saying that people that don't that haven't played baseball don't know anything about baseball and couldn't possibly do. Or no, it, was it? It was Scott Olson. It wasn't Kevin Olson? It was Scott, Scott Olson? Olson. Yeah. I'm sorry. There wasn't there Kevin Olson too. It was Scott Olson. Yeah. Um, Scott. Scott. I, I did a big strength of Scott Olson back in the day. Yeah. It was Scott Olson, and he was kind of like 
you know, Bruce Springsteen. You, played, you don't know anything. Yeah, gl- Bruce Springsteen, Glory Days uh, athlete. You know, <laughs> si- sitting outside at Duffy's watching a Heat game, uh, screaming at Slim. Uh, yeah, that was basically what he's become. But he was one of the better ones, actually. I mean, there, there were uh, go back through that list, and then they took some shots on, like, remember Jeff Allison, who had a bunch of off uh, field problems. He was considered an elite prospect. Like they, they missed on a ton of guys. It's going to happen. Okay, it happened then. And I guess the one question we never really asked Mike Hill is he kept talking about how the farm system was barren. The farm system was barren. The farm system was barren. Right? That was his big thing. We had to replenish the farm system. Of course, Mike was there during all that, right? Yeah. So I guess the question we probably should have asked, I think you tried to at one point, was why? Like, you know, because, I mean, you did ask him kind of what he looks at what he might have done differently. He didn't really totally address that. But like. No, he he, he, so he did this whole jag about how like we were we were a win now organization then that we were that like we didn't care about the future and and I mean to be honest I I do think that it's a little bit of harsh criticism because if any farm system produced Yelich Ramuto. Ozuna, oh, yeah. Stanton, like like the way that they built, like their young players coming through the majors was about as successful, at least from a position standpoint. You mentioned the pitching failures, but from a position standpoint, it's about as successful as a team could produce. Yeah, no, no, it was. I mean, right? No, they look. They hit on five. I mean, D Gordon they brought in, right? But yeah, uh, but yeah, they, but they hit on. I mean, Rio Muto was not considered an elite prospect when they brought him up. Um, I mean, Yelich. It's funny with Yelich. Yelich always reminded me of a Hermita comp, and he turned out to be obviously a much, much better player. But what they always used to talk about with Jeremy Hermita, who, by the way, was eliminated in the first round of our most reviled athletes in South Florida <laughs> That's history. That's too bad Which, because he was reviled. He man. was reviled. But ch- check that out. It's on Five Reasons Sports. We're counting him down. I mean, Jeffrey Lurie is going to win this thing, but whatever. I mean, we're, we're giving it a shot. <laughs> Heath, Heath Bell might be second. Uh, David Santos will be up there too. But but, but basically what we, uh, you know, when you look at Hermita, there was always this talk like, okay, he has this really sweet swing and eventually he'll develop power, right? And and he he kind of did one year. I think he got close to 20. But even with Yelich, our buddy Brendan Tobin like was mocking him how he would never hit 20 home runs yeah. and got out of that ballpark and he's hitting 30 plus <laughs> winning the MVP. You just you just don't know. You just don't know. I mean, so Stanton, okay, it was clear, elite elite prospect and I even go back to doing a radio show with Jeff DeForest and Jeff and I were arguing about whether you should include him in a trade for Manny Ramirez. There was one year that the the Marlins were relatively close to the wild card and Mm -hmm. were like, and you know, obviously it was smart that they didn't. So you you just don't know. So I guess the overall point here is, you know, that Mike Hill is going to take some big swings. Um, I do think they're going to lose a hundred. I think, and I think they may be better than that early, but I think as they start to trade pieces, It'll get worse, but I'm with you. They need to, we need to see three or four guys kind of emerge, okay, as, all right, these are core players going forward. Maybe they're going to have some bumps. Maybe next year won't be as good as this year, but these are build-around type players. I'd like to see them on the pitching staff, honestly, um, even more so than position players, but I think if they do that, because I think even as we look at the heat season, like I think you and I are looking at the heat season differently now because, wow, Look at Justice. Look at Bam. Okay, it's starting to happen a little bit. Like, okay, maybe they're not number one guys. They're start. They they're like... starting and they're closing and they're winning games. Like, like right. that. Like that's his, a, a dream scenario for those guys. Right. And D- Derek Jones Jr. is doing some things too. And you're like, okay, so there's some pieces here. We don't. We don't have a superstar. Okay, probably. But you know, I don't know what Bam's going to be. I don't know what Justice is going to be. We don't have a superstar. I think it's clear Josh is not going to be. But 
you know, I, I think, you know, he certainly can be a core piece, but you're like, okay, you have three or four core pieces here that you can build with. The Marlins guys are not going to be at that stage this year. But look, if Monte Harrison comes up in June, okay, and he hits 12 bombs the rest of the way and, you know, hits at least 250 and plays pretty good defense and runs the bases well, you're like, okay, maybe you have something here. So I, I think, you know, Brian Anderson last year, nobody was talking about Brian Anderson before the year, and then he was a rookie of the year candidate, okay? So we don't know. I think the thing we do know is the Phillies are going to be really damn good, <laughs> okay? <laughs> yeah. Okay, the Nationals are probably going to be pretty good, although obviously they've taken some major hits. I don't know with the Mets. It depends on what pitching they trade off. The lineup's still not great. Um, And the Braves have a really interesting young core. And the Braves are kind of, to me, two years ahead of where the Marlins were, right? Like they're, I mean, they, they broke the thing down. And now they've got Acuna in the outfield and they've got a lot of really good pieces. And, you know, they've got a new ballpark and all of these things are happening for them. So I think it's pretty fair to say the Marlins are going to finish last. I think it's fair to say they're going to lose 100 games. I think they'll play hard. I do think one more storyline I want to get to before we go uh, is Mattingly. Because he's been here a while now. Um, I think he's associated with Jeter because they're both kind of all-time Yankees, right? But I don't know what the relationship is really there. Jorge Posada's hanging around a lot. (laughs) I know what the relationship (laughs) is there with Jeter. Pretty clear on that one. Um, Do you think Mattingly survives the season? Do you think he survives the process? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on uh, on wh- really. He's probably going to be judged on player development more than anything else. I mean, I don't know how you can lose a bunch of games. I mean, unless he's making dumb decisions. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember because I remember at, at the beginning of the Houston Astros thing, uh, it was Bo Porter, wasn't it? He used to he was like a third yes. base coach uh, for yes. a while, and and I don't know uh, what what caused him to be fired. I mean, I, losing can be corrosive, right? It can it can ruin relationships uh, almost even even if the plan is to lose, but. I think it would be harsh on Mattingly, especially as Derek Jeter is basically asking him to ruin his career record, right? Like, that's the thing with Brett Brown of the Sixers, is that right. he almost will never get back to 500 because he was asked to lose for so long. Uh, his career record, uh, I'm going to pull up right now, is, uh, well, if you have to take out his, his uh, Sydney. His Sydney uh, so in the NBA, he's 127 and 283, and he's about to have a second consecutive 50 win season. Like, he's so far away from overturning his career win percentage and like if, if you're if you're a manager you do have to think about uh you know hey I'm, I'm doing kind of career reputation like he's I think going into this year he's got an above 500 winning percentage he's 665 and 628 as a manager he's going to be an under 500 manager for his career if he survives the year so like I, I don't know if Mattingly is going to even want to do it after this year he may not um he may not I mean I don't you know it, it's really remarkable to me how you know how far sort of the Marlins have fallen in the public consciousness that you have an all-time great Yankee of all things in this market and I don't feel like a lot of people even know that much about him as a manager like I mean except the diehards who are watching him every day who get frustrated with him but the diehards got frustrated with Freddie the diehards got frustrated I mean the diehards whatever I mean the diehards diehards impulsive state of being is upset with the manager Right. Well, they got frustrated with McKeon with, for good reason, because Jack did a bunch of crazy-ass things, okay? <laughs> it worked that, out, like, man. It worked. I mean, let, I mean, let's put in Mike Mordecai for Mike Lowell, see how that works. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, you get a home run, or let's play. Let's start Beckham on two days rest. And let's, I mean, I, I, I tend to believe, I know you do too, uh, and I know the, the Moneyball philosophy, that the baseball manager is one of the most overrated things in sports. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, to me, any... Any profession in sports, 
where basically you, you go into the clubhouse after a game and you ask questions that like, you know, the manager had nothing to do with because you're just killing time for 10 minutes while yeah. he's taking off his clothes. Like it's, it, it's just, no, it's just a weird, it's weird. I mean, they wear pajamas. Like it's just, I was listening to the uh, Lebetard show yesterday with Stan Van Gundy and they were talking about, uh, they were, they were playing some stories with Tim Kirchin and like his, his rapport with Earl Weaver and yeah. like, and they were lamenting, "Oh, how come the baseball manager as a character has died?" And in some respects, it's because the baseball, the baseball manager's importance has sort of died as the analytics have come through, and as basically general managers have kind of almost assumed the role of manager based off of dictating who plays and and, and how pitchers are used and all that, and, and the way in which the, the 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 pitching decisions get made now that gets done at a lot higher of a level. I mean. I do wonder though, because in these postseasons, that you know, the pitching changes are drastic and a lot crazier than they used to be, mm-hmm. um, and, that, and that is largely analytically based. I do wonder, like, if 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 this position is not really going to matter that much, why not just have a crazy character like a Jack McKeon in charge as as manager? But you're right. I mean, the the relevance of the baseball manager in the broader sports landscape, again, to the the baseball dorks, will will always be interesting to them. But uh, to the to the broader <laughs> landscape, it's just kind of died. Yeah, no, it ha- it has. I mean, I, I just don't think um, you know. I I couldn't. And again, part of this is because I faded from the sport a little bit, which kind of this was my sport growing up, and I knew everything, and I played APBA and Stratomatic and rotisserie and blah blah blah. I mean, I knew. I mean, more about this sport than any other. It's a sport I played, but I couldn't name ten managers now. I just couldn't. I it's a little of of both. I know Madden's in Chicago. I, I, you know, I, I know Dave Roberts is with the Dodgers. Okay. And I know Francona's with the White Sox, but I mean, I'd be hard pressed to get to 10 uh, really. And so I, and, 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 you know, I think we only notice managers when things go wrong and, and when the results don't work, but Mar- Marlins fans have had a problem with every manager and, and part of, you know, they had problems with Girardi his one year. Okay. After the fact they didn't, but like, you know, during it, I remember there were a lot of criticisms of Girardi. So, it's it is what it is. I just don't know that Don survives because I think what what tends to happen here is if the process is not working swiftly enough, or there's a perception that he's playing guys he shouldn't be playing so that his his record doesn't dip too much. Like is Prado getting at bats that maybe somebody else should get at this stage? Is you know Castro probably should play, but is Neil Walker getting a lot of at bats that maybe somebody else should be getting? Then I can see management jumping in and saying, "Look, this is not where we're going." And and it was interesting. Hill said several times that Mattingly was his partner in all of this, right? And that is important to say. It's not always how it plays out. <laughs> okay, so I, I think that's uh, that's worth monitoring. But we're gonna have a lot of Marlins coverage. I mean, we we I think we have much more Marlins coverage than anybody else in the market. It's not really close. I mean, in addition to Chris and I. Uh, obviously, check out Swings and Mishes with Craig Mish, Jeremy Taché, Michael Sonby, who goes by Dutch, and our three Cinco Rizonas guys, uh, Ricardo Alejandro Leandro, and uh, Tony Capobianco, who's a big baseball guy. He'll be out taking photographs. Also, our website is coming soon, and I'll be at opening day next week. So we'll have a lot of coverage of that on our IG feed at Five Reasons Sports, where I'll take terrible pictures and then take mine down and put Tony's up. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> for listening to the Fire Ranger Podcast. Thank you so much.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.